Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This activity, entitled Examining Heart Failure Management, How Can We Do Better, is provided by Medtelligence and is supported by an independent educational grant from V4 Pharma. Prior to beginning the activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements, as well as the learning objectives. So registry data has been showing us that we haven't been always implementing the clinical trials as we should, and that our patients with heart failure are often not receiving the guideline-directed medical therapy. And we still believe in the guideline-directed medical therapy. And so what does that mean to your practice? What does that mean to your patients? So welcome today to CME on ReachMD. I am thrilled to have my two friends today with me, Drs. Jabed Butler and Dr. Giuseppe Russano, and we're going to be having a conversation about guideline-directed medical therapy and trying to compare both the European guidelines and the U.S. guidelines. So, Javed, I'm going to come to you first. You and I have a lot of discussions about how our own colleagues in our own institutions are still not doing the right thing with giving guideline-directed medical therapy. And that's your opinion and my opinion of our own place. But what do you know about registry data and data out there that may really refute what we're saying or actually confirm it? I mean, we have data for some of these therapies uh, going more than a decade to two decades. And if you look at the registry data, there are really big opportunities there. So let's just review the data from CHAMP HF registry. Over 3,500 patients enrolled all across the United States, primary care sites, cardiology sites, specialists, generalists, academic sites. I mean, you, you just sort of look at a broad landscape of patients with heart failure, reduced ejection fraction. And what we found that the use of RAS inhibitor therapy was in the 70% range range use of beta blocker was in the sort of the mid-60 range. The mineral or corticoid receptor antagonist was sort of in the mid-30 range. However, if you then look at triple therapy, i.e. the patients received all three classes of drugs, it drops down to 22%. And if you actually raise the bar to what we should really be doing, which is not only provide triple therapy, but triple therapy at the recommended doses. And remember, the registry excluded patients if you were not eligible for any particular therapy or for there were relative contraindications. So even with that caveat, if you look at triple therapy at recommended doses, there were only about 1% of the patients that met that criteria. So lots of opportunity, big gaps. So Giuseppe, why is it so hard to do this? And what have your observations been in Europe? More recently, there was another registry data from the Swedish heart failure study that included 11,000 patients with heart failure, and that confirmed that there was a 40% only patients that were receiving the MRAs. So in part, it's related to inertia. On the other hand, there is a sort of limiting factor that is the baseline potassium. And indeed, the Biostat CHF a study clearly demonstrated the high baseline potassium, not necessarily hyperkalemia, but high range potassium levels, was an independent predictor of lower use or dosage of ACE inhibitors and ARB. So I think that there are uh, several reasons because of this inertia. Part is related to the physician itself, but in that case, the education and uh, dissemination of guidelines is very important. And the other one is related to the possibility of up-titrating, with potassium being a limiting factor, 
and with low blood pressure being the other limiting factor. So Javed, how do you optimize drugs in your chronic patients that you see in clinic? Yeah, so I mean, you know, it's sort of a team sport. Team sport has several members. You obviously need to engage the patients. So patient education is really, really important. So they need to be part of their own care and self-care. And there are some sort of simple things like low sodium diet. Well, I shouldn't say simple things, but they are complicated and we really need help. But relatively low-hanging fruits, a low sodium diet, exercise, uh, smoking cessation. So these are things sort of that the patients can really help, adherence to medications. But we need also help from other team members like pharmacists so that they can go over the medication side effect profile, nutritionists that can talk about low sodium diet or low potassium diet or whatever you're recommending. From clinician perspective, treatment of comorbidities becomes very important, high blood pressure, diabetes, obesity, uh, dyslipidemia, iron deficiency. So we have to sort of think about these things, screen them and optimally manage these things. And then comes the issue of sort of the stable medical therapy that we're talking about So Giuseppe, you recently worked with some of your colleagues at the ESC on maybe a specific guideline for potassium that I think would be incredibly helpful to the clinicians. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? So basically, this document gave a new place in therapy for the potassium binders as facilitators for the use of RASI. But at the same time, highlighted some important issues that are potassium supplementations, and uh, the use of non-cardiovascular drugs in uh, the possible cause of hyperkalemia. And so whenever we see patients with hyperkalemia, we don't have to look just at the RASI therapy, but also at all other medications that uh, these patients are taking because of the comorbidities like NSAIDs, but also antibiotics, antifungal therapies or nutraceuticals or supplements that may have an effect on potassium. So to come back here to how do we do this, because I think our clinicians are always looking for, tell me how I can do this and do it better. Making it easier to do the right thing. I have always thought that if doing the right thing is the easiest thing to do, then it should be done. So Javed, we've been talking about some of the chronic patients, brand new patient, acute heart failure patient. What are you going to do? How are you going to start all this? This is their first diagnosis. Yes, we just make sure that we screen for etiology of heart failure. That becomes very important. A lot of time we we miss these things. So what is going on with these patients? whether it's coronary artery disease, thyroid disease, valvular disease, iron overload, all of those things need to be sort of thought about and screened for. Patient education, especially in the beginning, becomes very important. And then make a plan of rapidly giving effective therapy for these patients because it's not only giving the recommended therapy, but the quicker we give the recommended therapy, the better it is because these patients are at a higher risk, not only of progressive heart failure, but also of certain cardiac death. You know, and this is where the team approach comes in, because if you can get the team engaged very early and then the patient sees the team as his or her entire care team, where all these points, because look at all the different points that we've been talking about. We've talked about diet. uh, We've talked about the different drugs. We've talked about measuring potassium. And now I can add exercise. How often is exercise being recommended in this population where we know, because we've tested it, that it is safe, that there are no excess events, and that if the patients can show up and can adhere, 
you may be able to decrease heart failure hospitalizations. Something that we looked at in HF Action, the NHLBI trial, was we started thinking about anemia. And this is way back when we were just going through the records of the patients coming in and we noticed that there was a significantly lower hemoglobin than what we would expect. And so we looked at a sub-study, obviously a, a post hoc, to look at, at hemoglobin and what the impact of hemoglobin was. But now we know a lot more about this. And as a matter of fact, our new updated guidelines from 2017 actually have a whole section dedicated to anemia. Giuseppe, tell us a little bit about Europe has really been the hub of a lot of this work about iron deficiency. Yes, first of all, let me say that the regular exercise is extremely important, as you demonstrated in patients with heart failure. And also cardiac rehabilitation is very, is very important, especially for patients coming out of an acute event. And in this patient, it's always important, as in any patient with a heart failure and reduced ejection fraction, to look not just for anemia, but for iron deficiency. Because iron deficiency can precede by often some years the occurrence of anemia. And it's not just anemia, but it's iron deficiency that has a significant effect on exercise capacity because of both the effect of iron, not just on the oxygen transport, but also as a metabolic agent, increasing the production of high energy phosphate. And there's clear evidence now that iron supplement, IV iron supplementation is extremely important in improving exercise capacity in patients with heart failure. This is very constant. And this is extremely effective, in, especially in those patients, the more difficult patients, patients with comorbidities, the, the elderly, patients are weak, where often we think that the weakness is something related to heart failure, but indeed is for large part is uh, related to the iron deficiency. And the ESC guidelines recommend testing for the serum ferritin in patients with heart failure and defines iron deficiency not just as a serum ferritin below 100 microgram per liter, but also the ferritin between 100 and 299 micrograms that is associated with a transferrin saturation less than 20%. And I understand that similar recommendations are being given by our colleagues in Australia. So it is important to screen for uh, iron deficiency, even in those patients without anemia. And if that is uh, detected, iron deficiency, iron supplementation, especially IV iron, because we know that the oral iron supplementation has no effect on exercise capacity. So IV iron is extremely effective in improving exercise capacity, but also quality of life. Javed, how do you interpret the recommendations that were made in the U.S. guidelines in 2017? Yeah, so the guidelines were actually pretty clear, but you have to put them in the clinical practice, right? So one, there's a recommendation to check iron panel in new onset heart failure evaluation in appropriate cases, but there sort of the thought process is a little bit different. That is to rule out hemochromatosis, but nevertheless, sort of iron is really important right at the beginning when you make the diagnosis of heart failure. But then there is a 
very clear recommendation that patients on optimal medical therapy who have persistent symptoms and exercise intolerance, that these patients benefit from uh, IV iron replacement. Uh, well, in order to implement that therapy, you need to check whether they are iron deficient or not. And remember that this is regardless whether you are anemic or not. If you have iron deficiency, there is not one, but multiple trials have shown improvement in functional capacity. So there's a class two recommendation that in patients with persistent exercise intolerance, symptomatic heart failure, unoptimal medical therapy, that these patients need to be replaced with IV iron. Well, that's all the time that we have today. I hope that for our colleagues, take a look at every single one of your heart failure patients. Even though they may appear, quote unquote, stable, stability is an illusion. Look at the guidelines, follow the guidelines, do your best to get those doses up, keep up titrating. At every visit, you should be thinking about what could I do today with this patient to get closer to that guideline-directed medical therapy. And that may include potassium binders, it may include IV iron, may include a lot more education about meals, about food, about diet, and potassium content. So I want to thank my two friends and guests, Dr. Giuseppe Rosano and Javed Butler, for their time and their expertise in this wonderful program. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to CME on ReachMD. This activity is provided by Medtelligence and is supported by an independent educational grant from V4 Pharma. To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, go to reachmd.com slash heart failure. Thank you for listening.